Hi, everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Use Guys in That podcast. Uh, we have the great honor and pleasure of having Professor Michael Humer with us today. He is the author of The Problem of Political Authority, an Examination of the Right to Coerce and the Duty to Obey, and many other works. Professor, thank you very much for coming on to chat with us today. Yes, thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to talk to you specifically about political authority. There was a great example that I saw that somebody had wrote in regards to what you had wrote saying like if I was driving down the road and I decided to speed and do like 90 in a, in a 25, pull somebody out of their car and then keep them inside my car against their will, people would look at me like I was a maniac and they would probably lock me in a dungeon. But the uniform, the badge, that entire that changes the entire uh, situation to where people will accept that kind of behavior from a person wearing that uniform and having the quote authority to do so. Would you please elaborate on what uh, the points are about the problem with authority, with political authority in that regard? Yeah, I mean, so that's a good example of political authority, right? So political authority, as I understand it, it's a hypothesized special moral status that the state could have, that legitimate states are said to have. Uh, and so it entitles them to coerce people in circumstances in which you or I would not be entitled to coerce people, in which it would be considered a violation of other people's rights. Uh, so, I mean, I usually give examples like uh, collecting taxes, right? If I go and try to collect taxes from people, I will be called a thief and an extortionist, right? Um, or, you know, if, uh, you know, the government just calls it tax policy and people think that's fine. And by the way, the point is not simply that the government is doing these things, but that people accept this as being okay, which shows that people believe that the government has a special moral status different from the rest of us, right? Another example is, what if I decide that there's a foreign government that's a threat and I need to make a political change in the foreign country? And so what I'm going to do is start blowing up buildings and shooting people, right? I get a bunch of buddies together. <laughs> okay, if I do that, I'm going to be called a terrorist, right? And right. also a mass murderer. But when the government does this, this is called war or, you know, uh, just foreign policy for the United States, right? Right. right so there are many of these things. Um, the other aspect of authority is that we're supposed to be obligated to obey the state just because they made certain commands. They tell you to do something, you're supposed to do it just because they told you to do it. That doesn't work for the rest of us, right? So you're considered to be obligated to pay your taxes, but you're not obligated to pay the mafia boss when they come by to extort money from you. Although it would be prudent to pay them so they don't mess you up. <laughs> just right. like, you know, just like the government will mess you up if, if you don't pay them. So it's prudent to pay your taxes, but, uh, but it's not obligatory to pay the mafia people. Like, why do people think it's obligatory to pay the government? Anyway, so, you know, like that's the philosophical problem about authority. Okay. Now, let me ask you this as far, like, historically, how did we get to this point where we're at right now, where, you know, just the questioning of the state is enough to raise the eyebrows of people around you to be like, well, what's his problem or her problem? Why aren't they following the programming? How did we get to this point where questioning authority is a problem? Yeah, I mean, in one way, we might have been at this point ever since, you know, our ancestors were whatever living in trees or something, um, right. because, you know, I mean, 
not exactly about the state, but there, there's always been in human societies a problem with people who question the accepted practices. In our society, you know, the laws made by the government are sort of the accepted practices. So there's a kind of status quo bias, a bias towards the way things are done in your culture. Um, now, you know, like part of your question might be, well, how did it get to be that the government took over our society? I mean, this, look, the basic story is in human history, there are some people who want power over others. And, you know, like groups of people would get together, band together and say, hey, let's go attack some people over there so we can, you know, like kill some of them, enslave some of the others, and then rape the women, you know, murder the men and rape the women. Like, that's basically, you know, human aggression in many societies throughout history. And, um, you know, this is probably the origin of the state is like some people just like attacking other people in order to subjugate them to their will. Uh, and so, okay, now, and then that just got to be like the way things were in most societies, right? Uh, and then, you know, around about the time of the United States, um, I mean, it wasn't exactly the same as the traditional pattern because you had people coming from one continent to a new continent. Okay, but basically there were already people on this continent. And so some people from Europe came and just like attacked, and just took the land and the people who were here. And then, you know, some of the like uh, the wealthier and more powerful members of this group of colonists said, okay, so we're just going to appoint ourselves to be in charge of everyone, right? Right. It's like, okay, and nobody stopped them, so... Right, but it's partly because everybody thinks that you need a government. That's part of why nobody tried to stop them, right? Uh, and so then, you know, and then the rest of us today, we're just like born in this society. We're just like people accept whatever they're born into, so, right? Um, you know, also it's like, um, I mean, basically people are afraid of the state, but they don't really want to say that, right? So like they're afraid of the state, which is why they, that's the real reason why we obey the laws sort of most of the time, right? Because sure. then we could be we could be punished. Um, but we don't want to say that. So what we like to say instead is, well, we're like being moral by <laughs> obeying the commands of the state. Because that sounds a lot nicer than we're afraid of being punished by them. Yeah, it certainly does. And at least it looks like, uh, I guess people get to, and maybe it's an ego thing where it's like, well, I'm not afraid. I just think it's the right thing to do. Maybe that has something to do with it as well. But it's definitely fear for the, uh, the majority of us. We were afraid of getting thrown in a cage, you know, for X amount of years, depending on what we've done wrong. Uh, let me ask you this. I know that you've probably heard this many times, and it's one of our least favorite things on this show and probably in the liberty movement. So when we talk about the social contract, how is it by virtue of just merely existing that we have consented to this contract? Is there any other example uh, in, in history, in the present, where such another contract exists where just by being born – You've autographed this thing and we have to abide by it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the only examples are other governments, right? Okay. Where they, they claim that you consented. I mean, they don't exactly say that you consented by being born, but they will say things like people say, well, you consented by being in the territory, just by being in a geographical location, which happens to be where you were born. Right? <laughs> but, and also happens to be like, your own house, right? Like right? You're on your own property. By being on your own property, you're consenting to whatever, what somebody else 
commands you to do, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, if you tried that in any other context, uh, it would be laughed out of court. Uh, and, you know, the government would would reject your claim with disdain. Like if you go to court and you try to sue somebody for breach of contract, right? And like, you know, the judge will be like, okay, so show me the contract. And you say, well, he was living in his house. And I told him that he had to get out of his house if he didn't agree to my contract and he didn't get out. Like, the judge is going to dismiss that in like one second, right? Right. But, uh, but you know, the same claim seems, sounds fine if it's the government, right? Always. I did ask uh, Jay and Chris earlier, you know, are we allowed to add to the social contract or is that just, you know, kind of written, although not really written in stone? Um, I mean, it's, you mean like according to social contract theorists, can you modify it? I don't know how you can because like it was never written in the first place and like, so I don't know how we even determine what the terms of the contract are, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, nobody said it or wrote it. Like a theorist can write down what they think the terms are, but then how do they know if everyone accepts those terms, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, is it changeable? I don't know. But um, I mean, the understanding of what the government is required to do has changed. Like the understanding of the social contract has changed over time because it used to be sort of a minimal state. The understanding used to be the government protects you from being mostly from being physically attacked or having your property taken. Uh, and now the understanding, at least among many people, is the government like make sure you have a job or something or make sure you have health care and schooling and, right. um, and a bunch of other stuff in addition. Right. Although, incidentally, this is not the government's understanding. The government's understanding is that they're not obligated to do anything for you. Right? Like this has come out in a number of court cases. So like if you try to sue the government for not doing one of its jobs, your, your suit is going to be dismissed. And the judge is going to say the government doesn't have an obligation to you, to any individual to, to provide them with any services. Right. I did um, recently read an article from the Free Thought Project, and it was in regards to um, and. I guess an illegal immigrant is, you know, the term that we're using, although I'm not really sure what they're always changing. So um, he wasn't a citizen of the United States legally. And um, a cop shot him, wrong address, shot him. Um, and they said he doesn't have any constitutional rights. And his death doesn't matter because he was a United States citizen. So like they can't even sue, you know, the yeah. state for his death. I mean, what are the, so, I mean, this points up the, you know, problem with policing that has come up like over the last year, but has been going on for a long time that it's very hard to hold police accountable for what they do. Okay. Now, like if the, if the cop shoots somebody without good reason, that is illegal, obviously. So there's no exception to the murder statute that says, unless the person is an illegal immigrant or whatever, like there, no. Yeah. Like if you shoot an illegal immigrant, you're going to jail, <laughs> okay? And it's illegal for the cops to do it too. It's just that it's really hard to get anyone to prosecute them. And then when they get prosecuted, the juries usually acquit them, um, probably because like most ordinary people think, oh, he's a cop, it must've been justified. Right. It's like, he's, he's got a badge, so. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the, uh, but the thing about the constitutional rights is so, um, 
There is like a federal statute that allows you to sue the police for violating your civil rights, right? But um, that would only apply if you're a U.S. citizen, right? So it would be it would be easier, you know, for the U.S. citizen to at least file a lawsuit, right? You, yeah. you can't start a criminal prosecution, but yeah. I have I have a question um, in regards to the police. Uh, when we talk about you know, as, as an anarchist myself, I know that it's impossible, but I try to talk to individuals who don't hold my, uh, my, my same philosophy, my same worldview. How is it possible that anybody can expect real reform and justice coming from the institutions, like the courts, the prosecutors, and the police all get their paycheck from the same place? They're all on the same team. So how can we expect one to thoroughly go after the other and check the other? Because I think that we could see that this checks and balances, at least, you know, how we were taught in civics classes as young people. We were taught, oh, we have a checks and balances system where one where one of the three branches of the government, let's say one checks the other. OK, great. But in reality, the only time you really see any checking is when it's motivated by politics as opposed to principle. It has nothing to do with, oh, what you did was wrong because it's ethnically incorrect or it's morally incorrect or it's against the law. It's, I don't like your opinion. I don't like the way you're trying to force your ideology, your specific ideology on the rest of us. We don't like it. It has nothing to do with the people on top of that. It has to do with the party. So how is it that we're able to at least get people to think about it? Because in my opinion, Professor, like that, my route to try to open people's eyes has been the police. Because we talk about on the show ad nauseum that they shoot on an average of 25 dogs per day in this country. People don't have an adverse reaction to how many human beings are killed every day. But if I talk about dogs, that specifically bothers people. They, they have a hard time with that statistic. So how can we how can we expect reform from an institution like law enforcement or the courts or the criminal justice system when they're all essentially on the same team? Yeah, good question, right? I mean, this is a good question for a status, right? <laughs> um, my answer might be we can't. Um, um, I mean, you know, we all we all learn the theory of checks and balances, right, which comes from Montesquieu originally, and then uh, it's like quoted, it's sort of uh, not quoted, but referred to in the Federalist Papers. So Madison says something like, "You have to, um, you know, get the government to control itself," and. Um, and the only thing that's missing from this theory is an explanation of why they would do that, right? Like, yeah, okay, there are three branches of government. And so like the judicial branch can check the legislative branch, for example, by striking down unconstitutional laws. Yes, they can do that, but why would they, right? Like, they explain, like, look at the incentive structure, explain what their incentive is to make sure that the legislature doesn't overstep its powers rather than just cooperating like, you know, and by the way, like all three branches of government get more powerful at the same time. Like if the Congress extends its authority or, you know, extends its power beyond its legitimate bounds, um, they become more powerful, but also the executive branch becomes more powerful, the ones who are enforcing the laws and the judicial branch will become more powerful. Like, so the checks and balances thing would only make sense if there were actually conflicting interests. Now, there are some cases in which they could have conflicting interests, like if one branch is trying to step on the powers of the other branch. But what if one branch is just trying to infringe on the freedoms of the people? Well, that doesn't harm the interests of the other branches of government. So why is it in their interest to stop that from happening, right? Right. Um, you know, I did some years ago, I wrote a paper that was, um, 
thinking about how you could redesign the constitution so that it would be more effective. I don't know if there's any way that it would really work, right? But I had ideas about how to improve it. So one of my ideas was we would create a separate legislative body that would be called the negative legislature and its only power would be to repeal laws, right? And so, um, and because that's its only power, there's more of a sense in which it's adversarial with the positive legislature. Right. Um, and another, another idea was that there should be a separate constitutional court where the only thing they do is review actions of other members of government for constitutionality. Um, at present, the Supreme Court can do that, but they don't actually think that that's their job. Like it's a, it's a Supreme Court doctrine that their job is not to enforce the constitution. They think their job is only to resolve specific controversies that come before them. Like two people have a problem with each other and then you know, the, the court resolves that problem, right? Right. Uh, which means like, right, so this leads to like, um, you know, sometimes you don't have standing to challenge a law. If you think a law is unconstitutional, uh, you may not have standing to challenge it. Sometimes there might be no one who has standing. Right. There was a um, there's an interesting case where um, there was an environmental statute. I don't know if this was the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act or something. Um, bas basically, an environmental group tried to sue because they thought that this environmental law had been violated. And um, the court said, oh, you don't have standing because you're not the ones being harmed. Right. Because the ones being harmed are the wildlife. Right. <laughs> So <laughs> if you can get some of the animals to show up in court. You know, um, oh my okay, God. But you see, like, that's an illustration of their doctrine that their job isn't enforcing the law or the constitution. They think their job is only to, re to resolve controversies, right? So you have to be the right person. To okay, so in my revision, we would change that and there would be a court that just reviews and, and they would have the power to just start a review of something of some action or law for constitutionality. Understood. Let me ask you this. Uh, in regards to one of your TED Talks that you gave, uh, I had to make a note of this. And uh, when it comes to irrationality, I find myself to be a very irrational person, I guess, because like, I'll give you an example. I get really irritated and angry every time I have to listen to statist arguments. <laughs> and like I'm, you know, I'm listening and I'm trying to keep my cool and you could you try to banter back and forth. What about this or what about that? You, you brought it up, too, when you're like you have to challenge what you believe in and at least listen to opposing ideas. Right. Which I definitely did. For like, for example, I was a Marxist when I was a young kid and I was very uneducated and stupid and i thought that i knew everything i actually ran for class um for uh, government uh, student and government day i ran for mayor of my town in the student government as a candidate for the communist party i had my my face next to the bust wow. of lenin so like i started out as a marxist and then i finally worked my way across the entire political spectrum and then you know finally landing where i'm at right now which is being an anarchist uh, but I do get irritated and perhaps I find myself to be irrational as well because I should not be getting uh, like angry at these people because it's their programming or whatever. But the, in regards to that, do you do you think that it's OK for someone who feels that they, you know, especially from a not, coming from somebody who isn't a statist? Is it all right to get a little irrational when you're listening to the most irrational, irrational garbage <laughs> on the planet? Um, well, I, I mean, it might be understandable, but it's not good, right? <laughs> it usually doesn't help the situation, right? No, it doesn't. Um, but I mean, um, you know, I think it takes practice like other things, right? Just practice listening to 
things that you can't stand and just, <laughs> and just like chilling out when you're going to, all right. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I think a good thing to keep in mind is that usually if you're arguing with somebody, um, your goal isn't or shouldn't be to convince them right now, right? So if you're going to convince them at all, it's going to, it's going to happen later. Like you're going to say something and then they're going to have to think about it because like human minds have inertia and it just like takes a long time to turn it around. Sure. Um, and then the other thing is if you're talking to somebody on a public forum, the real purpose of that is uh, for the audience, not for the person you're talking to, right? So you should just like, just like remind yourself, like I'm not trying to convince this guy. I'm just trying, like I'm doing this for the audience. I'm trying to convince third parties who might have an open mind, right? And then when you do that, you remember that you need to look rational and, uh, you know, and then maybe the other person will look bad, right? This is sound advice. I appreciate it. <laughs> Just keep your cool until they crumble. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I do have a question in regards to anarchism. So uh, in the past, when we have these uh, these titans that we uh, that, that I have a huge amount of respect for when it comes to at least in uh, in the American tradition, like, you know, the uh, the Haymarket uh, anarchists, like people like Lucy Parsons, uh, people like uh, before before her, like Lysander Spooner, uh, Benjamin Tucker. I feel like sometimes it, it, we get a feeling, at least I do, that anarchism might have peaked a little too early because right now it seems to be that like with technology being where it is now, it seems it's so much easier to make that transition as to uh, back when uh, right after the industrial revolution began where, yes, I understand, you know, I'm not knocking what they were trying to do, but it almost seemed harder then than it would be now to make any kind of transition to a stateless society or you know multiple stateless communities things like that do you feel that the movement peaked too early or do you think that perhaps the best is yet to come yeah i mean i wouldn't say it peaked too early because i i guess i don't think that it peaked right okay all right so it's still going um and i mean i i take your point that like i think the case for anarchism is easier to make now than it was 100 years ago Right. So one example is, um, you know, people wonder, oh, where's where's money going to come from? Like we need somebody to print money. OK. And then for a long time, you could say stuff like, well, we could have private banks. Right. But then um, like a lot of people just wouldn't buy that. Right? right. But now there actually is a private money. Right. Which is famous. Right. Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so it's been proved that this could work. Right. I was actually surprised because I when I first heard about Bitcoin, I thought that money had to be backed by something with objective value. Um, but I guess that's wrong. <laughs> I guess I guess you can just start a private, in effect, fiat currency, right? Right. And I'm, I'm impressed that you can do that and you don't need coercive power. So anyway, so proves that. Uh, here's another example. Um, how do the roads work? Okay, so well, you have to have private roads. Okay, so you have to charge people for driving on the road. So what, we, we have to have like these toll booths every five miles along the freeway and on all these streets, right? And so that just didn't sound so good. But today we have technology where you don't have to stop at all, right? Right. You just have to have like a thing on your windshield or whatever, or a device yeah. in your car, and then they electronically charge you. So now it seems more practical, right? Um, that's just a couple of examples. So, well, I guess I can continue to be hopeful that uh, 
we haven't peaked. I don't know, like perhaps also it's maybe a switching of strategy because, you know, it, it, when the movement really was going, you had a lot more like platformism and uh, propaganda of the deed, which, you know, will scare the hell out of everybody else who's not involved demanding more security provided by the state because you have things blowing up or, you know, what ha happened at uh, Wall Street um, in front of the stock exchange where you had um, anarchists blowing up cars, things like that. So maybe the, the strategies changed a little bit. Do you think that has something to do with it where there's not so much an abandonment of, uh, of propaganda of the deed, but knowing that that's not that's effective of getting a really hard state response as opposed to fighting the boss face to face? You're going to find a way around the boss. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, blowing stuff up doesn't work very well, right? No. It's like, OK, this has been tried. Now, there there have been times, I guess, when like, you know, violent revolution works. So like it worked for the United States. Um, but um, very frequently it goes like the opposite. Well, I was going to say the opposite of the way that you want, but it depends on what you want, right? If you're like a totalitarian, then it goes the way that you want, right? Like when you, so, I mean, one of two things happens. Number one, overwhelmingly more likely you lose, right? So like you blow up the federal building like Timothy McVeigh, and then you get arrested and then you get executed. And right. then that is the end of the story. You lost, right? Like a whole bunch of people don't join you and start whatever. Okay, number two, in the, you know, very unlikely, um, maybe you win, i.e. you overthrow the government by blowing up a bunch of stuff. Okay, but what happens after that? And, you know, if you look at um, violent revolutions in history, like it's common that if that's the way you topple the existing regime, then the... Who, whoever takes power at the end of that is like going to be, you know, the most violent people. So sure. that's why it leads to totalitarianism, right? You set up the situation where like the way to succeed is to be violent and paranoid and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, doesn't work out that well. Um, you know, also like, it's not really a good propaganda movie, right? Like, right propaganda of the deed yeah but it's propaganda for the other side right it's like 100 yeah the other side gets to say look at these dangerous whatever you know sure. actually like timothy mcveigh was like super propaganda for status against libertarians right yeah perfectly uh, as a libertarian <laughs> see how bad they are yep i i completely agree uh, I have a question from uh, two questions, actually, from a friend of ours, a friend of the podcast who's been on our show before. His name is Ace. Uh, he, asked, he wanted me to ask you what strategy has worked the best at convincing people to embrace or consider anarchism? Um, so I'm not sure because, um, you know, it's, it's fairly difficult to get people to embrace anarchism. OK, but um, my my dialectical approach is to ask about the basis for the state's authority, because I think that's like a super weak point, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, like almost everyone can understand my point. But I just say, okay, like why do those people have the right to tell everybody else what to do? There's like these 535 jokers in Washington. Uh, you know, they, they don't seem to be like the most moral people. They don't seem to be the smartest people. I like, I didn't vote for them. Why do they get to tell all of us what to do? And then, right, so like, first of all, most people can see the point of that question. Like, they don't just go, uh, you're self-evident, right? Mm. <laughs> like, people see that you need an explanation for that. And the second thing that happens is, 
they can't explain it. And then they notice that they can't explain it, right? Right. Now, most people will still not immediately agree that the state doesn't have any authority. They'll probably say, well, I don't know, but still, right? right. But maybe they will think about it more after that, and, you know. Um, yeah, actually, the other thing is, oh, actually, I, sh I should say, really, the best way of getting somebody to consider anarchism is to give them my book, The Problem of Authority. <laughs> that will be in the show notes, everybody. If you want to find it, it'll be there. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, maybe the main reason why most people can't consider anarchism is that they have no idea how it would work. Of course, they don't have any idea how it would work because they never read any of the anarcho-capitalists, right? But like some anarchists, when you read them, you still like, even after you read them, you still have no idea how they're thinking their society would work. Like, um, you know, like, uh, well, the left-wing anarchists, you're sort of like, okay, so what happens when, you know, a psychopathic serial killer is born in this society? And it's like, I don't know. They just like go around killing people? And like, you know, oh, well, there will be a security, there will be a community security force to stop them. You could like, sometimes they say that and then you're like, okay, and why would that security force not have the same problems as the current police? Right, like, would there be more than one of them or just one of them? Okay, there's one of them. It sounds like it's a monopoly on force. I don't know why this isn't the state, right? Well, it's gonna be controlled by the community. Okay, that sounds like democracy. Why is that not just democracy, right? Right. And so, um, uh, but okay, but so, you know, I think that, so I think only anarcho-capitalism makes sense. I don't think socialist anarchism makes sense. So if you want, if you want to convince somebody to anarchism, I think you have to explain the anarcho-capitalist idea about the competing security forums and so on, right? Which most people have never heard. No, that's true. Uh, they haven't, uh, and it's also the most maligned out of all of uh, the uh, schools of anarchism. In fact, you know, the the, the most vocal among the, the amongst the folks at the left side of the the quadrant, the bottom left, they don't even they don't, they don't even want to consider. Uh, anarcho-capitalism as being, quote, real anarchism or a form of anarchism. In fact, anything from the middle to the right, anything that's from the middle to the right is absolutely off limits. I, I guess that's the way they look at it. Uh, the second uh, question that Ace wanted me to ask you is what strategies can we use to break through most people's programming, how to attack their programming that they have installed in them? Yeah, I mean, you know, mo like most people you can't really convince, right? So like what you have to do is work on the marginal people. So like you have to find the people who, who are um, open-minded, I guess, mm -hmm. and sort of like, you know, the ones who are closer, right? Like we start there and then if we get a larger following, then it becomes easier to, to spread the idea. But um, yeah. And um, I mean, I think I, think I would say some, like the same thing. Like, I think you can get a lot of people to see that there is a real issue about why the state has authority. And I think you can get them to see that they don't know why, right? Actually, like, come, there are a few things that people will commonly say, which I, I regard as easily refutable, like, oh, well, there's a social contract. And then you're like, okay, and so how did I agree to this social contract? And then you're like, okay, by remaining in the territory controlled by the state. Now you're going to say this thing about how, well, 
So if I declare that you agree to a contract with me because you're living in your own house, you're not legitimate, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, there are other things that they say, like by using government services, but okay. Um, and then another thing people will say is, well, because we voted, like they have authority because we voted for those people. So, okay. So, you know, you tell the story about like, you know, there's a, um, there's a saying that democracy is three wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. Right. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, just like tell a story about, well, three people decide that they want to violate the rights of a fourth person. So the three are the majority, right? Like in this group of four. So does that mean that they get to do it, right? And like, uh, you know, most people will agree not. So it's like, um, you know, just, just sort of like confront the, the rationales that people give, right? Sure. And you know, they're, not, they're not that hard to unravel. All right, awesome. Uh, I have a question in regards to, uh, do you think that because of what has happened from uh, this gross overreach by the state, individual states, and of course, uh, you know, you, you can even throw the federal government in there. The response to this uh, virus situation that we've been in for, I guess, for a year now, do you think that this will act as a great awakening for people to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't have a, an all-powerful state who can tell us what businesses stay open, what, you know, like small mop and mom and pop shops, which have closed down in my town specifically, but yet the big box stores are the beneficiaries of the situation because they're the ones who are allowed to remain open because the government has the power to determine who closes and who opens. Like, do you feel like that we're going to see some kind of blowback from that to where, uh, you know, maybe the hoi polloi says, hold on a minute, maybe uh, governors and the state shouldn't have this much authority? Or do you think that it's actually going to be the inverse where we're going to see more of it happen? Because, you know, when I look at comments on Twitter, for example, which I know is not the best example of humanity that we could possibly find. Uh, at the same time, a lot of people, you will see them begging for their chains. They're begging for the boot to be pushed onto their necks a little bit harder, you know, demanding that governors keep uh, uh, open air dining closed, you know, to force people to wear masks indefinitely. So I see both sides of it. I just want to get your take if you feel it will go one direction or the other. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, the average person takes the most benighted response to any like, you know, they take like the worst lesson that you can have from a historical episode, right? So like what, what's happened with the pandemic is uh, became politicized, which doesn't mean that people think about the political values at stake or whatever. What it means is that um, people take it as a proxy for the culture wars, right? Or, you know, a proxy for just tribal conflict, mm -hmm. the blue tribe and the red tribe. Right. And so like for Republicans, I think, it's just another example of like overreach by the state and whatever, okay? But, but their response to that is not gonna be, oh, so the state needs to have less power. Their response to that is, oh, so Republicans need to displace Democrats in the government and everything will be fine. That's what they think. And then the, the reaction on the part of Democrats is, oh, this is just further proof that Republicans are irrational. Right. That's why we need to have Democrats in power, not Republicans. Like, I think those are the average person's responses, right, to the situation. Um, you know, like my own, my own reaction at the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't know how bad it was going to be. And also I was hearing things like, um, oh, you know, we're going to shut down for a couple of weeks to flatten the curve. That's what I heard. And so I thought, yeah, I guess we should do that. 
Um, and then it turned out to be like, it's still going a year later. What you're doing? Right. Um, and then I don't know if we flattened the curve, but um, like, I don't know if it made any difference, right? Like all these people lost their jobs. And by the way, this isn't selfish on my part because I'm doing just fine. I'm fine. Right. But I, there are a lot of people who are screwed. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, okay, there are people who would have been evicted if the government hadn't banned evictions. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they lift that, how many people are going to be evicted because they haven't paid the last six months rent because they were laid off, right? Yep. And by the way, what's going to happen to these landlords? Because I'm, I know you're not supposed to feel sorry for landlords, okay? But what if, you know, you have a mortgage on your property, right? And you have to pay it with the rent. Mm -hmm. And like, if you're not getting rent and you can't evict the person either, so you can't get somebody else paying rent. So then you're screwed, right? So then what? So I don't, I don't know how many people are in this situation, right? But, um, you know, I would not be surprised if there was like a big recession. Yeah, I don't think that would surprise any of us uh, at all. Let me ask you this from a professional point of view as a professor who is you know, interacting with college students and stuff like that. Uh, do you ever try to challenge their programming that they've had from, let's say, the 15,000 hours of public education that they've uh, endured uh, since they were little? Do you ever try to get them to think critically? Can you point out the critical thinkers? Have you ever seen students develop these skills to where they start questioning their programming of what they've been told? Because, I mean, that's kind of the idea of going to, well, at least it used to be to going to university, right, is to be exposed to all these different ideas that challenge the things that you believe as a young person to where you, oh, okay, well, let's see if it holds up against what I've been taught, you know, things like that. Do you ever see any of that? Do you have, you know, is, do you ever have a positive experience? <laughs> do I ever have a positive experience? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be amazing if I didn't have some good students, right? Right. Made me happy. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I teach the stuff about authority, um, I try not to be heavy handed, so, but I am teaching from my own book, so, <laughs> which I assume the students realize that they're reading me. <laughs> um, <laughs> indeed, they're reading the book. Um, and, you know, like on most, on most topics that I cover, there's like a pro and con, right? Like I have readings from opposite sides mm. and then, you know, we talk, talk about what these people are saying, so. Um, and yeah, like I, you know, sometimes I have students tell me that I changed their minds about things or made them think differently. So may, like, I think I've had, you know, I've had students periodically say that, um, maybe I can convert them to anarchism or vegetarianism. Uh, I think that might've happened more and, um, but I don't, I don't know how many. So like, I think the great majority of them, I never really hear what they're thinking. So I never know. Um, probably they're not changing very much. Um, one, of the, one of the, you know, somewhat disappointing things that you realize, um, like after being a, a professor or a teacher for a while is the people that, um, the people that you can do the most for are the people who don't really need you. <laughs> like okay. the smartest people who could have learned this stuff on their own. They're the ones who are going to learn the most in your class, mm -hmm. right? But they didn't actually need you, like they could have gotten the books. But anyway, but the people who really need to be educated are like the hardest, right? And, you know, and also the people who need it usually don't want it. So they're not gonna get it, right? Like, 
you know, this is the problem, right? If somebody, I'm trying to teach some material and if somebody doesn't want to know it, I mean, it's going to be hard, right? Like, right. I, I mean, they want to get a grade. Okay, so like that's the tool that you have, but if they don't want to know, they just want to get the grade, they're going to like try to do whatever they can to get around actually understanding, right? Just so that they can get the points on their test or whatever, right? So anyway, uh, so, you know, the good students are the ones who actually want to know, right? But that's why I'm saying they're the ones who don't need you as much, right? Because they will learn anyway. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't think about it that way because anytime I, when I was uh, going for my undergrad and even now for my, uh, uh, for my graduate, I'm, I'm learning because I want to. Because, I mean, sure, the tools that, that, you know, the benefits that come with more education because it's a credentialist society are definitely there to having uh, advanced education, but also to, do, to be able to be in a learning environment and, and actually ha have challenged what I already know and also add to what I don't know is, is awesome. The other opportunity that I've, I've loved to have and I've talked about on the show before is when we're sitting in meetings and uh, I bring up things about democracy and how much I like it and the reactions that I get from everybody, because most of the people that are in my cohort want to go to the alphabet soup, uh, the soup boys. They want to be FBI or they want to be CIA or they want to work for the Department of Justice and all this other stuff. And me, absolutely. I mean, not a gunpoint would I ever work for any of those institutions. Uh, I always I always bring terrible things up about what the state has done or like all of the um, uh, all the terrible things that these specific alphabet soup gangs have done uh, to Americans, to other people. And they just look at you with these snotty looks or especially like I was telling Angel, you know, when I bring up things about how terrible, like I don't like democracy. We're like, well, if you don't like democracy, you must be some sort of Nazi. Right. Because those are the only people who don't like democracy. And it's like, <laughs> well, no, that's not exactly the way it is, you know, because and then I bring, bring up there's opportunities, at least as a student to say, hey, have you ever heard of this thing called the tyranny of the majority? You know, where like you brought up the wolves and the sheep arguing over what's for dinner. You know, sometimes you're able to see that little bit of a twitch and they're like, oh, I haven't heard that before. Uh, my program is being, you know, challenged. I don't know how I feel about this. You know, and at the same time, there's probably kids in that class because I'm a lot older than them. They're, they're probably taking notes. But like when I get the job, I'm going to send them to his house and I'm going <laughs> to send him to Guantanamo Bay. That's what we're going to do. So yeah. I was just curious because you're right. The people that don't need it are definitely, you know, the one, I understand completely what you're saying. I just, I ever, I guess it was my fault for thinking people went to college to, to learn, you know yeah. what I mean? As opposed to just get the grades so they could get the hell out of there. That's on me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I mean, there's a, um, there's a very interesting book by Brian Kaplan, The Case Against Education, which, you know, basically argues that the purpose of college is not to teach people a bunch of stuff, it's just to signal that you have certain desirable traits. You go to college to signal your intelligence and perseverance and your willingness to put up with a bunch of bullshit that other people are telling you to do for no reason, right? Like just put up with doing a bunch of tedious labor that seems pointless for years. <laughs> for years. And, and you know, that's why you get like a big boost in your income after you get the college degree, right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, Angel, I know that you had something that you wanted to ask. So please, I'm going to turn it over to you. I was just going to ask um, if you were naturally inclined to see inconsistencies or question um, the inconsistencies and in arguments, or if you really had to focus and train your brain to do that over time. 
Uh, mostly natural, I guess. Well, I, I guess like I always liked um, arguing and sort of, you know, doing logic things. But, um, but you know, I, I did get more training. Like I, I got a philosophy degree at Berkeley and then a PhD at Rutgers. So, and I mean, you learn to think more clearly by studying philosophy for several years. And, you know, like I, I could just feel it getting better. Like I could feel myself getting less confused. I didn't realize at the beginning how confused I was, right? I mean, I was always into arguing, but I was still confused when I was at the beginning of college. I was a confused arguer, although perhaps not as confused as most other students, right? So, yeah. All right, awesome. Do you have anything else, Angel, do you want to ask? Oh, um, what do you like to do for fun? Um, I don't know, uh, play computer games. <laughs> You know, waste time on social media, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. Making make snide remarks on people's Facebook posts or things like that. That's fun, I guess. Outstanding. Is there any particular game that you enjoy uh, more than others? Uh, okay, I'm playing a Star Wars game on my phone called uh, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. It's fun. I play that as well. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Have you, have you unlocked any Galactic Legends? No, I haven't. I haven't unlocked any Galactic Legends yet. There's like, yeah, you if, to if, if, if you're chintzy like me and don't spend any money on the game, it takes forever to grind it out. But like I've, I for real, I've been playing that game religiously for probably almost four years. So wow. yeah, no, no Galactic Legends yet. <laughs> I have Jedi Master Luke. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> Heck yeah. Do you consider yourself a big Star Wars fan, Professor? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great movie and a great movie series. Uh, do you have a favorite character by any chance? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Darth Vader is a good character. <laughs> that's the right answer. That's the <laughs> right answer. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, I, uh, Christopher, do you have anything uh, for the, for Professor before uh, we wrap? Uh, yeah. Uh, hopefully it doesn't turn into a 20 minute answer uh i'll try to simplify it but but uh, so anyways in regards to just uh, like arguing or not necessarily arguing but de debating with people uh, over uh, you know for an uh, anarcho-capitalism uh, a lot of one of the common responses that i'd say that i get and probably a lot of people get is oh well, you just want big corporations to to rule over everything and then when i try to point out to them that like corporation is is a legal term and under anarcho-capitalism, they may not exist as you think they exist in relation to the state now. Like what would, in your opinion, what would be a good way to refute that point and to like properly explain that to people? And, and how do you think, say, like big business would operate under anarcho-capitalism? Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't think that uh, people are using the word corporation in the legal sense, right? Right. I think yeah. they just mean like a big business. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it might be worth pointing out that the government does a bunch of stuff to um, that's sort of like skews things in favor of big businesses. And um, you can, there's like a theoretical explanation of why this is the case. And when you understand the theoretical explanation, then you'll see that it's not a good answer to just say, oh, we'll fix that. And we'll just like have the government start helping the small businesses instead. Right. And, you know, the explanation has to do with the incentive structure, right? You have um, well-organized concentrated interest groups. They can go and lobby the government. 
And um, the more diffuse group of consumers, it's like there's not an efficient way of them going and lobbying the government, right? And like most people can see some of the symptoms of this in their life, like, oh, there's a big farm bill that was passed whenever. And um, how much do you know about it? And like, well, you don't know anything about it because it's like, it's not worth your time, right? Okay, but I can promise you the big farm corporations know all about it. They all know what's in it. And like, so in that situation is not gonna change. Like as long as we have democracy and as long as we have the government, let, just like making a bunch of regulations for industry, this obviously it's going to continue that the people who are most affected like big corporations are going to put in the time to know what's going on and to try to influence it. And like a random person, like you're one of the 300 million people in the country, you're not going to put in time to try to influence it. So, okay. Um, and, you know, and then you can give examples of the stuff that the government does. I think that people don't understand that, you know, like, um, first of all, big businesses are not like big lovers of free market capitalism, right? Because like the real idea of capitalism is competition mm -hmm. and businesses do not like having to compete. Mm -mm. Business. They want, yeah. And so what they want to do is get the government to come in and like reduce the competition. Yep. And so um, there's a book called uh, The Big Ripoff, which uh, I've forgotten the author's name, but um, you know, it just gives lots of examples of how the government makes regulations that help some businesses at the expense of other, of their competitors and also at the expense of consumers which, you know, it's like, it, it's just completely predictable that that would happen if you have a bunch of regulatory agencies. That's what you should expect. I did have another question in regards to like ethics and morals. Um, I forgot that I wanted to ask you. So um, do you find like major inconsistencies between individual ethics and morals and when it switches to a group ethics and morals situation? Um, I mean, I find sort of inconsistencies in people's attitudes, I guess. Like, like people are willing to cut more slack to the group, um, you know, for, for reasons that are not so clear. Um, I don't think there's a inconsistency in sort of like the correct moral views, so to speak. But um, I mean, it, it's more, I think it's more, uh, there's more of a contrast between um, political actors and private actors than there is between um, individual and group agents. Okay, so, right, because there are other, so the state is a collective agent. So it's a thing that performs actions, but it's not a particular individual person, right? But there are lots of other collective agents like um, private companies or clubs like, uh, you know, the Sierra Club or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I mean, there's a big contrast between how people treat the, private collective agents, you know, with how they treat the government collective agent, right? Like they cut a lot more slack to the government. Um, they don't cut that much slack to collective agents that are not government. So like if the Exxon Corporation decides to like go to a foreign country and start blowing up buildings mm -hmm. and shooting people because, you know, the political regime over there is bad. People are not going to, people are not going to stop and say, but you know, the political regime there really is bad. I mean, they got to be taken out, right? I'm not going to say that, um, right? And so like, yeah, you know, even a collective agent, not, right? Not, doesn't, is not treated as if it had authority. 
Uh, you might think like people treat society as if it were special, um, but like society gets to do stuff that individuals don't, okay? And that I think is like maybe an even bigger mistake, you know, than treating the state as special. It's a bigger mistake because society isn't even an agent. It's like, there's just a whole bunch of people and like they, like I'm not, I'm not doubting that there are collective agents. I'm just saying society isn't one, right? Because there's not enough co coordination, right? Just a bunch of people who are doing different things. The government counts as an agent because there are mechanisms that coordinate the behavior of all the people in it. But there's not enough coordination among society for it to count as an agent. So it doesn't even make sense to be talking about what society wants to do or what society should do, right? Society like doesn't perform actions. Mm -hmm. um, the government could perform actions and private corporations can perform actions and individuals can, but not society as a whole. Excellent. I have a question. So uh, along with what you have written, what would you suggest to somebody? Uh, what would you suggest be like a reading list or perhaps a couple of authors that you would direct them to uh, in order to educate them better on uh, the topics of what the problem is with the state? Uh, with a political authority and specifically, I, you know, for anarcho-capitalism, where would you direct an individual to go uh, and read like, you know, what books or authors should they take a look at? Me. <laughs> uh, and then after that, I mean, David Friedman and Murray Rothbard, right? So The Machinery of Freedom, I really like that book. And um, For New Liberty, those both kind of explain the anarcho-capitalist view, if you haven't heard it before. Um, and, you know, like there's other narco-capitalist things, um, like Randy Barnett, the structure of liberty is pretty good about like how the legal system should work. He doesn't use the term anarchism. He calls it polycentric legal order. We should have a polycentric legal order. See how, how much better that sounds than <laughs> narco-capitalism. Um, yeah, um, you know, I like Brian Kaplan and Jason Brennan, although I don't think that they've explicitly written about how they're anarchists in their books. There's an anarchist theory fact from Kaplan, which, you know, answers lots of questions and, you know, that's helpful. Um, Brennan has this book against democracy, which, you know, like a lot of people need to have it explained to them what's wrong with democracy, right? And like why it doesn't work the way the civics class teaches you, right? Mm -hmm. All right, excellent. We will uh, definitely put those in the show notes. Uh, Professor, for uh, our listeners, where can they find uh, your works? Where can they find any journals that you've published? Things like that. Uh, you know, I have a, a webpage, owl232.net, owl232.net. And uh, there will be links to, you know, some of my papers were posted. Um, and uh, there's like a link that shows a list of my books, which are all on Amazon, by the way. And then, um, oh, I have a blog fakenews.net, right? F-A-K-E-N-O-U-S.net, which uh, many people find entertaining on uh, and what. And then like, uh, actually I uploaded some video lectures which were for my class after, um, you know, when the pandemic struck and then we started doing classes online, I, I started recording lectures. Uh, and so some of those are uploaded on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. Excellent. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Does anybody have anything else before we wrap up? No, I would just like to thank you for coming on and taking the time to talk with us. And um, I really greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, much appreciated. Thanks for having me.
Yes, sir. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it was a real honor and pleasure to speak with you. Uh, folks, if you need to, if you want to find, I highly recommend checking out everything that Professor Humor has laid out for us today. It will be in the show notes uh, with the links to find his books and his website and the blog. So once again, Professor Humor, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. You're welcome to come back anytime you want to talk. All right. Thanks. All right. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you for joining us and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Peace.